Hello again. We're at Holistic Investment, and now I'm delighted to have this conversation with Alon Gorin. Uh, Alon is a good friend. We've met multiple times in, in different conferences, and specifically in Crypto Invest Summit, which he uh, and the Joseph Holm, like they uh, co-founded and organized for many years, and united the entire blockchain community in LA and many other places as well. And now he's a founding par partner at, at Draper Gorin and Holm at Venture Studio and invested in many startups and now they're helping the entire industry to grow. So Alon, great to hear you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, the excitement is mutual and as always, we have to kind of read the legal disclaimer uh, to make sure that this content is for informational purposes only and you should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial or any other advice. So now we can start and let's start from the positivity. Look, there's a lot of negativity in the world. We're living in the pandemic era where there's a lot of jo like jobless people, people are stressed. Um, and uh, I think it's not only in our industry, it's in many industries, people are feeling uh, the stress. So let's try to add some positive news. What's, what's positive, positive about your venture strategy? Like, tell us about your history and let's bring more positivity. Sure. So if we're going positive, we can start with, you know, well, one, uh, yeah, you can tell we're in COVID because of uh, my my great haircut, uh, which I'm gonna we're gonna try to do today. But um, but but I think the positive uh, part about it is you know something that furthers our industry a lot, which is how sort of meaningless where you are geographically actually is. Um, you know, it is really important for some respects, but we're seeing that working from home isn't making most people less productive. Um, it's showing that a good entrepreneur is a good entrepreneur no matter where in the world they are. And um, so, you know, it's, I, I think the, the bright side is that this sort of digital future, these digital jurisdictions, these ideas that are just concepts in the blockchain world and the decentralized world are showing, you know, the, the ability or the, the potential in the real world because you know, you're, you're in New York, but when was the last time you sat in an office with somebody? Um, I'm in LA, when was the last time I sat in an office with somebody? Um, and you know, the people I communicate with the most are in uh, uh, Miami, Vienna, and London. And I haven't been in an office with them for four or five months, and we are more productive than ever. So, you know, I, I think that the positive aspect of this is is not just looking within our own teams and going, wow, our quality of life could be better because I don't have to sit in two hours, three hours of LA traffic anymore. Let's take it beyond that to, hey, I just had a phone call at 8 p.m. last night with somebody in Thailand and you know we could work on a deal together and it doesn't matter that they're not in the United States. And so let's, let's, let's change the world and, and remove these borders, both you know, physical and mental uh, and, and change the world. Let's make shit happen. Let's do this. Perfect. That's, uh, that's definitely positivity. And I thank you for that. So uh, help us to understand a little bit of your history of your background. How did you get to this industry? Why you decided to be in this industry and what, what makes you excited to be, still be here? Yeah. So um, I got here in, in kind of a, a weird way. It, it kind of goes far back in my own personal history. While I was still going to college, I worked uh, as a teller uh, at a bank. And it was the old, first time I worked in any, in a real capacity. I worked at like restaurants and things like that. But like, it, you know, outside of our own family business, which was rebuilding auto parts. So I knew nothing about the financial services world. Uh, but um, I, I was a part of it. And then I got uh, my first techie job was actually in a systems architecture group at Care. Um, I wasn't super happy about being there. I uh, got a job at MySpace. And MySpace, this was like at the moment when they were the most trafficked website on the internet. So like it was the coolest thing ever for, for most people. And, um, and I was uh, a part of a small group there, but something that happened there at the time was this thing called Open Social. And it was like a partnership with Google and Friendster and Bebo and all these things that allowed people to play those casual games on the internet, no matter which platform you were on. And one of those games was Farmville. And the great vanity metric 
uh, of the day was that Farmville sold more fake John, like, you know, digital John Deere tractors that year than they sold actual real tractors in real life. And um, of course, one is 99 cents on the internet and one is, you know, $100,000. So they're not comparable. But what's, what's exciting is that it was like the first time mainstream people like people like my mom's friends were playing games on the internet and paying for something like you like before that day, you know, people were still like, you know, that generation was still contemplating buying, buying anything on the internet, let alone something that doesn't actually exist to them, a digital good. So that planted some seeds in my brain. And we um, started one of the first ever crowdfunding platforms, my, my, an, an old partner of mine that was at MySpace and I, and we started a company called Invested In, which was a crowdfunding platform before the word crowdfunding existed. We called it a social fundraising platform. Um, and uh, over the years, that snowballed into, that industry snowballed into what sort of ICOs and crypto and crowdfunding really is today um, with, with all that's going on. And um, as that company was winding down, I met Joseph, who's now my partner, um, and we started our own crowdfunding conference called Crowd Invest Summit. And Crowd Invest Summit was sort of this passion project we had because we'd meet each other at awesome crowdfunding conferences around the world and have a drink together and then complain about how there's no investors at the crowdfunding conference and no people crowdfunding at the crowdfunding conference, just the platforms and the service providers and the lawyers and accountants and stuff who are all of our friends. And it was fun to grab a beer with them, but Joseph lived in Santa Monica and I lived about an hour away from him. Like, why are we having a drink in Orlando right now? Why are we having a drink in Vegas? We could just meet like at home. And, uh, and part of, so, so that, that was sort of the genesis of creating a crowdfunding conference, which quickly became the largest crowdfunding conference in the world. And as over the years, as things progressed, I was no longer, I no longer had a crowdfunding business. I was working at a fund and also in the crypto space. And I decided to go full, you know, full force, full time into crypto. And so did Joseph. And we decided to rebrand the conference to Crypto Invest Summit. And since then, we've rebranded to LA Blockchain Summit. But while we were doing that, we started to invest in companies off of our own, uh, out of our own pockets, um, off our own balance sheet and meeting great companies. And actually like the first one we did a deal with was Total, um, one of our portfolio companies. And as things grew, we decided to formalize this into a formal venture studio. It's no longer Alon and Joseph helping companies and writing small checks. Let's do it together. Let's be more organized about it. And then sort of the venture studio was born. And last year, Tim Draper invested in us, joined us as a partner. And now through the venture studio, we still incubate and accelerate and amplify early stage companies. And our fund also does follow on funding to help those companies grow. So, I mean, it's an incredible story and I think it's exciting and inspiring for a lot of folks. So I will ask you kind of provocative question, right? You know, why sure. do you think Tim Draper is such an iconic uh, person in the investment space? Why do you think he decided to partner with you? Like, you know, what, what's your gut feeling? Like there is a real story and there's also like, you know, kind of like untold I, story. I think that, you know, there is, there is, uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you the story of how I met him, which was really, really cool and silly. And as you can see, I can talk a lot. And as you know him, because he's sort of this icon in space, he can talk a lot too. So we had this funny situation where one of the first investors, actually the first outside investor, in that company that I talked about invested in was a group called Amplify in Los Angeles. They're in Venice, uh, California. They are one of the best startup accelerators in the world. Um, and uh, <laughs> obviously I'm biased. <laughs> As I said that, I was like, that's kind of full of myself. Um, but uh, I, I love these guys and I think that they're great. And Tim Draper is an investor in Amplify. And one day somebody, you know, goes, hey, Tim Draper is going to come by the office and meet all the companies. And we were all excited because, you know, even 10 years ago, or this was, yeah, 2011 or 2012, this, it was a huge deal to meet Tim. And so uh, he, um, Tim's brought in by one of the partners and the guy is, is saying, hey, everyone, Tim is here, but he's only got about 15 minutes. So I'm going to rush him around all the companies so everyone has a word. So please be quick. And then, uh, and then he pointed at me and he said, Alon, 
you talk too much, you're going last. <laughs> and, I, and I just smiled and was like, okay. And Tim went around the room and starts talking to all the various portfolio companies. And then they get to me and I start to pitch to him, invested in this crowdfunding platform idea that we had. And he goes, wow, that's really interesting. I like crowdfunding. And he pulls up a chair and he ends up sitting for like an hour and a half. Um, and you know, this is after we were told he's only coming back for like 15 minutes. Um, and he uh, introduced us to Adam, his son, um, that day. And the next morning, Adam actually flew down from San Mateo to meet us also, because he was uh, thinking about launching a crowdfunding platform of his own. And we eventually, he was one of our first big clients, and we launched Boost Funder, which is now, uh, which became Boost. And, you know, we have no, nothing to do with the success of Boost other than I was in the room when they created the logo, but I kind of just stood back and, and went, ooh, that looks cool. So, you know, I, I have no, no, nothing there. But what was great about that whole situation was that I did get to sort of from behind the scenes or from the cheap seats, see kind of the evolution of the, the crypto space because I went to all of their demo days for Boost and I got to meet a bunch of the early Bitcoin companies that they were a part of and things like that. Um, and, and I got to meet them. Uh, it, what was interesting is later on, um, one of the funds that invested in us was a part of the Draper Venture Network. And so I got to go to the Draper Venture Network events um, as the CEO of a company they invested in. And after my company ultimately failed, I was, uh, hired by that company, that by that fund to be a venture partner. So I got to go to the investor only Draper Network events. And so when Joseph and I started formalizing what we did, one of the first people we reached out to was Gabe from the Draper Venture Network. He's the, the director of the network. And we asked him to beat us up a little bit. We sent him our deck and said like, what's wrong with this? You see more decks for funds than anybody else. Tell us, uh, you know, would love your feedback. Um, and in the process of him giving us some feedback, he also asked if we'd like to um, uh, uh, present to the network and at, like try to join and apply. And um, we said, yes, but we're not actually a fund. <laughs> um, we're, we're this venture studio, invest off our balance sheet. And they said, that's fine. They're like, like Tim, they embrace, you know, breaking the rules a little bit. And so they said, you know, you guys can be different. Um, that's, that's fine with us. And so, uh, we, we ultimately joined the Draper Venture Network and then Tim Draper later invested in us and, and that's, that's how it came to be. So what I think is, is great and going back to your question, which I, you know, uh, did some jujitsu in avoiding, um, was that, uh, was that um, you know, I think that Tim has, has had the ability to see how we work over the years. He's been to our conferences and been a speaker at our conferences for, for a long, long time. And so, you know, it was, you know, each step along the way, he got to know us more and more and more. And I think we work really, really well together. As you know, he's, um, he's so bullish on the space and, uh, and he is so, um, so into it. He really sort of embodies it too, because he truly does believe the whole sort of ethos of, you know, there is no crypto without community and he participates in the community. And so, and he sees, you know, he's been a part of, of all of our events and, and uh, you know, comes to them and wants to be a part of them, regardless of if he was an investor or not, before he ever invested in us, he would come to our events and stuff. Um, and so, you know, we were able to show him what we bring to the table. We already know what he brings to the table aside from, from, from just money, because that's only a small part of it, because he's just so out there and networked and a, and a great partner to have. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I would assume that he's seen us execute and do what we do, which is very different than what most people do, you know, so, um, and, and I think he likes rewarding people who are different. <laughs> no, I think you're, first of all, I, I have my own opinion on that as well. So like, I guess you guys are so good in uniting uh, uh, others, you know, like you're so good also in like building community. And I think it's a very undervalued, like, you know, skill set, like, because people think like investors are only good in due diligence, you know, they somehow like miraculously become like important and rich, you know, like, but no, there's other things which are like all of the management, you know, like skills that we think it's actually you're doing some job that others are not willing to do, right? You know, you're just uniting other people, like whether it's like a small company, whatever, it's like 20 people, 
and like you're you're managing people who are designers, developers, like from finance and everything. And you're just doing the job that other people don't want to do because it's a lot of responsibility. So. So I, 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 I really appreciate like, you know, what you're building because you build like a, a good community. Thank, thank you. And you have a little more insights because you saying that we're doing a job that most people don't want to do is just shows that you know what the job is a little more than the average person. Because I think that when you go online uh, or when you read TechCrunch, right, or whatever the, the, the publication of the day is, um, it, it's everybody sort of thinks that the VC job is really, really easy. And in some ways, it's a very, very privileged and, and lucky job that, that certain people get to be a part of. But I remember the first job I did get sort of as a VC, or at least as a, as a venture partner at a VC firm, um, the, the partner joked with me and said, you're going to get to see behind the curtain. It's not as fun as it looks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's because of those reasons. You, you have to say no you know, 99 out of 100 times, and you have to do all these things that are hard. And we're also just so much more hands-on than the average VC. So we get down and dirty with the company. So we sort of live the ups and downs of 10 startups at a time instead of just that one, which is stressful enough on its own, right? So, I, and, and I think also, like, uh, it's important to notice that you also get a lot of no's from investors, whether you like it or not. Like, people can have amazing personal relationship with you right you know but unfortunately sometimes their investment thesis does not allow like it just does not allow them to participate in your particular fund right and and vice versa right you know people who might think that oh whatever they do but like you're the perfect model for them right you know so yeah well that's that's a thing too that if you go behind the curtain for every single fund so this is something that that when you tell startups or when it clicks to startups, it really makes them feel like you're more on the same team too, is what they don't uh, realize sometimes, and I didn't realize when I was on that side of the table, is that funds are constantly fundraising too. And they have investors that they go out to, to invest in their funds. And, um, and so they're also, while they're sort of judging startups and deciding whether they're gonna participate in those startups, they're also being told no by a lot of investors all the time, um, uh, including, uh, including us. <laughs> so so uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. That, that's, uh, that's a great point. Now, and, and so coming back to the, like I would say, like details, because the devil is in details. So you mentioned that first you've created uh, a model of Venture Studio, right? And mm -hmm. then it's, I would say it's evolved into a full-fledged fund. So can you elaborate a little bit like for the audience to understand what is the difference, the major difference between the Venture Studio model and the fund model? Yeah, so I think the venture studio model in general is, is sort of considered like an incubator type of model, right? So, um, or an accelerator kind of model, which are two different things, but we kind of do both. So once a year or so, we create a company from scratch. We know all these people in the industry. We, you know, we, we met with Ami Ben David, the founder of Onera, um, when he was doing uh, something else, and he had this idea and he wanted to do it. And I brought up an idea that I had from back in the day. And I said, together, we can actually execute these things. And we started working and we actually formed that company and we're co-founders of Onera. Um, and we consider that an incubated company. And we did a lot of the work to get it off the ground. And we do most, we mostly now focus on the marketing and I'm on the board of, of the company. And, um, and, and that's sort of an incubated company. The accelerated companies is what we do with 90% of our companies, which is a company comes to us and pitches us, and we try to be the first check in the company. So we write checks that are kind of like a Techstars or an Amplify or a Y Combinator style check where, you know, we end up with 5 to 10% ownership in a company. Um, but the difference between us and those people is that we don't have a, a cohort. We don't have set beginning times and end times. It's just rolling. And a company isn't with us for three or four months. They're with us forever. And so, you know, and, and we work our butts off ourselves. It's not just a, hey, come work in our office and we'll consult with you. We'll, we'll advise you and we'll help you. And those people are really, really valuable. I'm not discounting their value. What I'm saying is that we, we, 
don't work that way and we probably couldn't work that way for a lot of reasons. And, you know, when a company joins us, we become like co-founders, whether we're not co-founders, right? But we act as though we are. We own enough of them to be super incentivized and we don't do the deal unless we feel like we could add a disproportionate amount of value. And so we think before we even write a check or work with a company, what can we do to help this company? Whether it's reach more customers, uh, help them with their product, um, uh, get them in the media, um, get them to the next level of, of company and raise more money, whatever that is, we think about that in advance and don't do a deal with the company unless we feel like we could add that value. Um, and, and we never do a deal with a company unless we love the people and we know we want to be locked in a room with them for the next 10 years. Because that's essentially, you know, what, what happens. So, you know, there's been plenty of times where like, oh my God, this is like the smartest person I've ever met, but they're kind of an ass. I don't want to sit, I don't want to be talking to them every day. Um, and then sometimes like, oh my God, this is the nicest person. The product's not there, but they're solving for a really specific vision that we like. Um, and let's keep in touch with them. And if, if it makes sense, we're gonna work with them in the future. And that's how 90% of our deals end up working. We just like the people a lot and they're going after a, you know, solving a problem we think uh, needs to be solved. And we stay friends with them and we work with them and we, we participate as much as we can. And you know, our docs give us like pro rata rights and whatever and our fund, the whole point of the fund is to follow on funding to those companies. So we we then work with them to continue to grow. And so now I'm, I'll have to ask you another provocative question, which I cannot ask you directly for the compliance reasons, like how much are you investing in each company, but I will ask you a general one. What is a typical ticket size in the industry of accelerators and incubators that like, for example, a company is giving you five to 10% of equity? And what is an average, like an industry average? And, uh, you know, we, we, I can say that ours isn't exactly typical because I, you know, in, in the time of COVID and the times of different things and depending on the cash flow of the company and what they need and things like that, our checks range between, uh, uh, you know, $10,000 and a hundred thousand um, dollars. And, uh, and in the typical, in the industry, it, it's kind of a mix, but it's somewhere around the same thing. Um, and for accelerators, um, as far as I know, um, shoot, I'm blanking on their name, so so I feel bad. But there's um, a really good uh, accelerator based in uh, the UK. Where I was going is uh, there is a great um, uh, there are some some great startup accelerators in the blockchain space, just not many. Um, we like I said, the difference between ours is that we're rolling, and the other ones still do those programs, like three month, six month programs. But ours, uh, we like to be flexible. We like to work with whoever's available right now. Uh, it's weird, you know, and sort of not natural to go like, hey, we love your idea. Wait three months. We're going to have a class and then we'll start working with you then. In those three months, somebody else might invest in them or they may, who knows what will happen. So we, we just work all the time. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure like the, you're, that you're definitely one of the most hardworking people and you can see the results. So, you know, it is just like, actual results the project you invested the publicated number of publications the amount of people you educated so uh, another clarification which i think is just important to understand uh that you know there is this kind of criticism that goes to incubators and accelerators and i wanted to debunk certain myths that when people go to accelerator like and whatever that may be like hundred thousand or two hundred thousand that's not actually cash that you're getting sometimes you're getting like uh, value in, the, in, in a disproportional amount of like media support, partnerships and others. So can you help to understand what is the ratio between the actual money invested? We're talking about cash value yeah. versus like the services. I'll, I'll speak to us. I, I like uh, similar to the blockchain space, right? We like being transparent. And as you can see in these things, sometimes I'm tra transparent to a fault, right? Like I'll tell everybody everything. And the reason I do that is, is one, because it's just how I naturally am and I'm not going to really censor myself. And two, um, uh, it's a bit of confidence in what we do, right? Like if you want to work with us, let's work together. If you don't like what I'm, what I'm selling, we shouldn't work together because you're going to be unhappy. I'm going to end up being unhappy. Nothing's going to work out right. So with us, when I talk about the check size, that is cash invested. Um, but we do have some other things. Um, that, that help make the deal make more sense, right? So we can add a lot of value like 
you know, every single company that comes through us gets $100,000 in Amazon credits, um, $100,000 in Google Cloud credits, um, up to $100,000 or $120,000 in Amazon credits and free software from Amazon BizSpark and stuff like that. I mean, Am uh, Microsoft, I mean, uh, if I said Amazon, Microsoft BizSpark credits and all those kind of things, which basically means, you know, if you're using all the Microsoft suite of tools as a company, you don't have to pay them for two years, which is, which is a real value when people start purchasing development tools and things like that even in the hundreds of dollars a month, but we're startups and we're, you know, working on shoestring budgets and that's important. Amazon credits are probably the most valuable of all those things, but, uh, but whatever. So um, then we have other sort of intangible things like you're up on the Draper Venture Network website and we promote you and we do all these things. We internally um, uh, actually subscribe to tools that, um, that PR agencies subscribe to. So remember, our conference is a big part of our business. You know, we, we personally own 90-something percent of the conference, and we, um, and not personally, we have assigned uh, our ownership of it to, to the company. And so to promote that conference and to promote us and do all that, we've built a huge media list and a huge um, distribution list and a huge email list and on top of that, we actually pay for these tools that PR agencies pay for. So every week, our team sends an email to every one of our portfolio companies asking them if there's anything new that they're releasing this week, any news this week, anything we can amplify. And then when there are big announcements, we actually email it to our database of international journalists. So if it is uh, uh, DGENs, who does a peer-to-peer -peer sports betting you know, uh, exchange solution, we can get it into the hands of not just the techie and blockchain journalists, but the gaming journalists around the world. And if it is, um, you know, Onera talking about digital securities, um, we can get it into the hands of the people who cover finance and business and things like that and securities trading and venture capital around the world. And that's something that normally um, you pay a PR agency for. And I'm still a huge fan of, of our portfolio companies hiring a PR, PR agency at the right size and at the right place because they're expensive. But, you know, when they're ready, you know, I sent an intro to, you know, Kelly Weaver this week at Melrose PR to one of our portfolio companies and said she'd be great to, to, to work with. Um, because, you know, but until you get to that point, you shouldn't be spending five, 10, 15 grand a month on a PR agency. You should just send us your press release and we'll get it into the hands. We'll do 80% of the job or, or maybe less. I'm maybe being a little bit, uh, uh, you know, um, optimistic, but like we will do most of what a PR agency does, um, uh, with, with what we have to offer. And then they can, you know, once you're at that stage and can afford them, you go and get a real one. But nobody that has, you know, that is at that pre-seed stage should be paying for a PR agency and we can give them a lot of those things. So it's like we, we bring all, we try to bring all sorts of value outside of that. And then there's just weird stuff we do randomly. Like I created that WordPress plugin using the API of one of our portfolio companies and ended up taking off. And there's, uh, I think, over 400 new DEXs that exist in the world using Total's API because I created that WordPress plugin and I did media around it and all that stuff. That's a kind of intangible value that, that you know, we, we try to bring to the table. We create, you know, opportunities. So essentially co-branding, co-promotion, partnerships, uh, a lot of like introductions, you know, like if you need to be like, I'm sure you can offer some great people like ad advising like the project. So, uh, yeah, like that, that's, that's, that's amazing. I think it's important to hear uh, and the people should understand that there's a lot of value behind the scenes, which are not always clear when you first come to Accelerator and you don't understand what to expect, especially in the era where everything is virtual, right? And what, what, yeah. what, how can you get exposure? You can no longer go and like have coffee like in Silicon Valley, like or whatever, and in LA, New York. You should like you should reinvent the entire strategy, the entire approach. So here goes my next question, right? So how many projects did like uh, like pitched you lately, and did you invest in some projects recently? Yeah. So we. Uh Yes, so a lot. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's gotten to the point where we're, we're actually 
a little bit disorganized at the moment on too many companies pitching us um, through our website and submitting their decks and doing all that stuff to the point where we actually are coming up with a new process that we're doing uh, with weekly office hours and things like that. Because one thing that we love about what we do um, is that we get to meet so many people through our events. So like we do the blockchain and booze events every Tuesday night and we, we talk to people and in those conversations, they end up leading to great pitch, uh, pitches with companies. And at our physical conferences, we got to meet so many people in person that then you start to build relationships because, you know, I meet Constantine at, at event and another event and then we have a phone call and then all of a sudden we're like good friends on other sides of the coast and we haven't seen each other in probably like a year because of conferences. Uh, well, one, not existing for the last few months, but like we share deals together and things like that. So these things happen um, uh, organically and we're trying to continue to create organic things. And what's, what kind of sucks about getting, uh, getting pitches to your website is you might see the deck, you might see something interesting, it might spark an idea and have a conversation, but it doesn't always translate well. And I, I especially at this pre-seed stage where everyone is so early, I, I wanna actually talk to the person, see them and, and interact with them and, and get to know them uh, in, in a more organic way. So we're, we're starting to schedule these office hour things where we have like five, 10 minutes with each company for an hour a day, like twice a week, and, and try to then go, okay, keep in touch with this company, send them a no for now, or, you know, hey, yeah, or, or whatever, and, um, and, and things like that. So we're, we're trying. Um, it's, it's a different world, but these blockchain and booze things, we thought we would be doing for a month or two. Now we're on like number 15 or 16. Uh, we've been doing them for three months uh, every single Tuesday night. Uh, but it's turned into a really great um, deal flow kind of opportunity. Um, so, so, but, but yeah, we're, we get multiple a day uh, of companies who are submitting to us and it's hard sometimes to keep up. Oh, you, and you asked about deals now. So yeah, uh, we've, uh, yeah, we are actually finalizing one deal right now. The, it would have been finalized uh, uh, two, three weeks ago, but lawyers slowed it down. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, we're, we're still going strong um, and uh, still investing in companies. And, and if anything, are more active now because of, the, uh, of sort of this, this locked down. Uh, you know, some, some things have been inspirational. Some things have been out of necessity. Um, but, but, you know, we're, we're all in lockdown. We're all working our butts off around the clock. There sort of is no weekends. There's no nights. There's no mornings. It's just online all the time and it's both good and bad in some ways but we're we're using it for its good uh, at least internally and trying to to help everyone in any way we can now so so in this particular context i want to also specify like is there any uh industry angles that you're thinking are like the I would say utmost interest for you, right? I know that you invested in companies that are uh, across the security token space and the exchanges, like, you know, like layer two solutions. So maybe you can uh, also elaborate a little bit, like, what do you, how do you look at the deals? Is there any like specific like niches that you consider are more attractive? I think that there's sort of like these two huge, there's a few huge opportunities. So I, I like the security token stuff on one side because you're digitizing something that's still very analog. And I know that, that, uh, that docs for deals are in PDFs and I know that most people docu-sign things now, but it's still not truly digital in the sense that the terms of the deal are not digital. The distribution of funds are not digital and the mechanisms are not digital like smart contracts can create. So I love that world because you can now digitize all of these things. And even though I believe that most of the regulations in the space are, uh, even if they're done for the right reasons, are not done right, um, because they're very old and it's old fashioned and some of them uh, you know, feel very egregious and un-American and unfair and, and just not the ethos of this open world we want to be a part of. Um, but the technology can streamline those regulations to make it more accessible for everyone. And if we're going to live in a regulated society, um, we, we can go that route and, and 
circumvent that in the best possible ways legally and speed up a process. On the flip side of that, I'm obsessed with DeFi because of its ability to completely go around all of it. And I don't want anyone to do anything illegal and I don't want anyone to do anything unethical and we would never participate in anything that was illegal or unethical. Um, uh, but, um, it, you know, there, there is certain things, you know, in which can just be streamlined with smart contracts, things that can be better, things that can usher in um, the, the borderless world that, that I envision, right? Like I want, uh, you know, families that live in other parts of the world to be able to communicate with each other without intervention. I want them to be able to send each other money and resources without their governments being able to steal it from them. Uh, I want them to be able to do it without Western Union stealing from them because paying 12% to transfer money in a digital age is, is theft. Um, so, so, so that's why I love DeFi. And in the DeFi world, there are people who are bridging the gap. And, and so where I'm looking right now, and, and I'm kind of ignoring the fact that like NFTs and gaming and things like that, which are huge opportunities, um, I'm, I'm look, thinking about fintech in this answer to you right now, is that there are many, many opportunities that DeFi is creating that is not ready for mainstream, that, that may not ever be ready for mainstream by themselves. You know, as much as we love like the compounds and the balancers and the Uniswaps and, and our portfolio of the DMM, what's, what's not good about those things is you need to be connected via Web3. You need to self-custody everything. You need to do certain things that my mom is not ready for. Right. If I, I, we actually were incubating a product on top of DMM and we wanted people to be able to pay in fiat and uh, and self custody their DMM M tokens. They're, these are the tokens that are earning six and a quarter percent interest in a stable fashion. It's kind of bridging the gap between DeFi and, and centralized finance. And I, I love this product and I wanted everyone to self custody it on their phones, write down their, um, you know, we were in the process of, we forked the, um, uh, the trust wallet um, uh, infrastructure that's open source and we built on top of it. We started working on it and then we realized when somebody puts in their, their bank, connects their bank account and transfers money and then self-custodies the tokens, we need them to put in their seed words, write it down, all that. And we're like, what happens the first time my uncle drops his phone in a lake and I go, okay, what are your seed words? We're going to recover your savings account. He, He'll be like, what the fuck are you talking? What are you talking about? Like, think about like our, uh, you know, all of our parents and aunts and uncle generation and the most of our friends we went to high school with who, who only exposure to crypto is maybe on Coinbase or Gemini or something like that. That's the best case scenario. <laughs> it's, exactly. So, so there, most of the people who lose their phones or get a phone stolen or something like that probably won't have the seed word secured probably won't no matter how many times we go to them and tell them to and we realize that's that's not a consumer product we could really get behind it's going to be a customer service nightmare tons of people are going to lose their money and it's just not going to work the same reason why you know uh crypto isn't adopted by by a ton of people in terms of in a decentralized fashion but if you look at that as a huge opportunity it, it, it really is something because what these people are creating, it's like saying like JavaScript isn't ready for mainstream. Of course it's not ready for mainstream. Like why would my, my uncle know how to, you know, create some JavaScript code to do something. It doesn't need to be ready for mainstream. What it needs to do is be enabled by people who create mainstream products. Right? So, so now DMM exists here, right? And on top of that, there are trust companies like Prime Trust, like Kingdom Trust, whoever. But Prime Trust is an example, and I'll use them because I've known them from the crowdfunding world, and I love them, and they're good people. And they power uh, a lot of the trust for a lot of the largest exchanges in the world. And uh, so crypto exchanges. Um, and so if you think about there's DMM, and then you could take Prime Trust as, as the next layer that can basically hold the tokens and the fiat, on behalf, legally on, and insured, on behalf of, of the end user who could deposit fiat, earn their six and a quarter percent interest without having to self-custody it. Now, all of a sudden, the general public, the, our aunts and uncles and friends from high school, and, and whether you're in China, in India, in Afghanistan, in Israel, or in Los Angeles, 
you can all earn six and a quarter percent interest on fiat without having to do any of the, the crypto stuff that, that is hard for you and get all of the benefits from DeFi. And what will happen is all of a sudden banks are going to have to try to compete with that. They can't because they have overhead. They have a ton of fat on top of it. And the best, the best banking products in the world right now for savings that are liquid for the consumer is, I think, Marcus by um, Goldman Sachs. And that's something like maybe a little over 1% interest. And when you look at the crypto space, there's tons of products that are, uh, that are getting into to like what DMM does, which is six and a quarter percent interest. The, the thing I love about DMM is it's a more solid foundation because it has assets in the real world. And those assets keep it as a more steady six and a quarter percent as opposed to, you know, compound and all of the... Um, all of the uh, sort of yield farming that's going on right now that can one day give you 100% yield um, and then the next day get you 0.1% yield, the next day get you 8%, maybe on average it's gonna, on average it will 100% sure be better than traditional banks, but most consumer products can't be built on something that's that volatile. So that's why I like DMM as an example of, of that. So if you can take that same, you can take that same analogy and take it to any one of our portfolio companies in the DeFi space, you know, total brings liquidity uh, as a backend solution. Um, you know, DGENs brings, brings peer to peer betting it, uh, as a layer. And in the future, every single jurisdiction where it becomes legal, people will be able to launch their own ex betting exchanges. It could be for a university sports program. It could be for a geographic region. It could be for a particular sport. It could be for the, whatever the heck you want. So if you think about that, all of these DeFi products could enable a better future for consumers as long as somebody builds the consumer layer on top of it. And so we're looking to invest in those layers too. So if I would summarize like what you've said, so we're, we're yet to build the solid infrastructure and it's going to take time. We don't know. We're not, we don't have the magic ball, right? <laughs> so crystal ball to predict it, but it's, it's yet to come. And secondly, there are, there are already great solutions like DMM. And I know Gregory personally, I think that's, a, I, I agree with you. It's a great project. I like him and I, and the fact that how passionate he's uh, coming from a finance background, like, you know, like just recently coming to crypto, but he would quickly realize in the potential and like spearheading the entire opportunity to leverage the traditional finance and the crypto with, as you mentioned, as, as exactly as you mentioned, right, to, to bridge the gap where I would add like the additional benefit that internationally we uh, now have access to one of the safest jurisdictions in the world, which is United States still, it's number one as a safe harbor for parking money. And yet, like if we're looking at the opportunities there, like, you know, like bonds, you know, uh, they're, they're like, what, 3%, 5% best case scenario. And, and we if we actually com com like compare the complexity uh, to that takes people like, you know, to invest in and to analyze the opportunity in traditional finance where, Look, in commercial real estate, like when people are doing like nine to 10%, this is like already like they're, it's like a miracle. Like, wow. Like this is like, you're outperforming everything, even though like it's not at an S&P 500 like uh, level, like, but at the same time, uh, you know, somehow we are always criticized. We like from the traditional finance, we have more criticism towards the, uh, the DeFi industry and saying, well, it's not mature. We don't know what you do and you can lose our money. But like, no, it's actually the opposite. We are more transparent in many ways. There are, there are great solutions which are just like there. And yes, it takes some education. Yes, there are maybe like two, three additional steps that you need to, you know, to do like just to buy a token and to like, you know, process like, you know, crypto to fiat and vice versa. But it exists. It's still like, it's, it's amazing. And I think like my passion is like why I'm loving having this conversation with you because I, I do believe that, like we're still in a process of educating people. We're still in the process of like just explaining the practical uh, benefits, like the case studies, which are like DMM and Onera and other of your portfolio companies. And I, and I do believe once, once people will see that, look, it's working and it's safe and it's international. Like you can actually like easily, like coming from any jurisdiction in the world with bypassing all the complexity of like, you know, of the like, uh, banking like KYC ML like which you, you it's people don't realize how hard it is like I'm as, as an immigrant I can tell you 
when I try to open my first account, you know, in uh, Chicago Board of Trade from Ukraine, I mean, to tell that I, I was having a hard time is to say nothing. Like, this was a nightmare. Like, you know, I, I had to go through one broker to another. Like, there was like multiple, like, uh, like layers of how I was due diligence, like how I was analyzed, you know, and, and now everything is like three, I don't know, like three buttons, like, you know, three steps and voila, you're open, connected to your account, you invest in it, secure, you have entire in, uh, system of tracking where the money are going, like an automatic reporting. You don't have to trust a person, you have to trust technology. So I, I just want to add this, like, you know, I just felt that like after your speech. I, I love it. I, I love it because it's what I tell people all the time, because some people, when we were, you know, when we're just talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin in itself is a huge topic and, and we spend all, all day long talking about it. Um, people in the United States, especially because of what you said before, we are super lucky. All of the things we fight against in this own country, we're still probably in, in a better up position than 90% of the rest of the world. And that's being, uh, that's, that's being uh, pessimistic. It's probably 99% of the rest of the world, right? Like we are privileged and super lucky. And because of that, when we talk about Bitcoin and digital money, we, we can compare the, the differences to our own dollars, which feel digital to us anyway, because we use online banking, we use our debit and credit cards all day long, and we very rarely actually hold physical cash, or at least I, I very rarely do it. Most, most people don't. They get their, uh, their checks deposited uh, into their bank account every single uh, month. Uh, this way and they don't actually get the physical checks anymore even and, and things like that so so when we talk about bitcoin it's like okay there are some marginal better differences for some use cases in the united states but for pretty much the rest of the world those marginal benefits for us are extremely huge benefits for them right when when the u.s was dropping bombs in iran not too long ago people in iran were buying bitcoin for double triple the price of, of what Bitcoin was being bought for the rest of the world. Why? Because when things are unstable in their country, they're worried their governments are going to steal their money. Like we don't have that feeling here because we've never really had to deal with it. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that happened in the Great Depression, which is why things are the way they are in, in some respects. But, but you know, we're not worried that, that our bank accounts are going to be frozen and we're not going to be able to touch our money, right? For now. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't want to start this topic because after we just sell it, like added like a few trillion dollars, like, and this is like just, just the beginning, like, you know, like to our- Yeah, yeah I, I'm with you. And we, we can go down a rabbit hole and I can say all sorts of things that, that uh, but, but I'm, I'm saying like, if we're just, if we're, we don't have like our, our moms and dads, and uh, brothers and sisters and people who are not in the crypto space. And I say our moms and dads, I'm not trying to say older people aren't as sophisticated, whatever I'm trying to say is that our friends and family, people who we know that aren't in the bubble that we are in the crypto space. Uh, when Corona happened, uh, a few, when it started, I do know some friends that are like, hey, go to your bank. They're limiting the amount of withdrawals you could have. Go grab a thousand bucks in cash just in case, you know, get some cash. And people were a little bit freaking out, but it was like very, very little. It was a little bit of panic and then nothing. And then so many of my friends like didn't really think much of the fact that the government printed trillions of dollars. They're like, sweet, we don't have to pay taxes for a few more months. Like they didn't realize the government printed like more money than they normally accept in taxes every year from us. Like it's crazy, right? So, so there's going to be all sorts of things that we're kicking the can down the road for by doing that. And, and we, can, we can dive into that, but, but really we don't feel it because we haven't been in a situation. You maybe as an immigrant have had some feelings and thoughts about moving money around the world and, and all that. But like most Americans, like I was born and raised out here. My parents were immigrants, but, but I, I didn't ever have that thought of like, I'm going to lose all my money at some point. I never really thought that would happen to any of my relatives in other countries, but I should have because that, that did happen to my grandparents. Right. You know, so so we're not it feels like it was uh, a really long time ago, but, you know, 90 years ago, shit was really, really bad. 
And that right. happened all across Europe and most of the world, right? So, You're talking about 90 years. I'll tell you like a very simple example from, from six years. So we're okay. closer maybe down the line, like, you know, from six to 10 years, where in Ukraine, for example, the national currency is Grivna. The, uh, the exchange rate, you know, before the revolution, it was like about, for, from, it was fluctuating between eight, eight and 10 Grivnas per dollar. And now it's 27. So just so that you realize it's three times, you know, like, so devaluated, you know, like according according to the dollar if if you compare the pair. And you can imagine that a lot of folks who are, who are like, you know, the the population was 42 million back in the days now, like about unofficially, there is like about 6 million who left the country. So we're seeing a situation where, you know, the country lost like a lot of workforce, you know, like the, uh, and it's people who are actually able to work and, you know, and now the, the, the currency depreciated and there's no alternative solutions. That's, that's unfortunate. So I think when we're talking about the DeFi, it's, it's, it's a new potential answer. We're not there yet, but it's a potential answer where, where people will trust each other with a new concept, with a new opportunities. And yes, it's not perfect. There's yet a lot to be built. Uh, but what is why I'm excited about it? I think it's just because yeah, we have this opportunity. Yeah, well, we think about this. We get the opportunity now, and it, the technology needs to get there so that people in Africa feel comfortable with it, and people in Ukraine feel comfortable with it, and people in Asia and everywhere in the world and wherever you are, they need to be comfortable with it. But you have at least right now the opportunity to hold your value in whatever currency you think is the best one in the world. Because you basically get to bypass your religion and you can hold uh, your religion, your government. And um, <laughs> that's a slip. We could go there in a second. Yeah, um, dollar is a religion in a way, so that's fine. Yeah. Well, religion and government, you, um, there may be the same thing. We'll see. I don't know. I'm not going to go there. Let's not, let's not go down uh-huh. that path. But, let's, uh, but you get to bypass your government's currency and hold the, the currency of the government you feel, basically the digital jurisdiction you feel is the most stable. So if you're in Africa, there's nothing stopping you, you know, other than a VPN, maybe, but in most countries in Africa, not, let's say China, the only thing stopping you from holding Tether in your wallet or USDC or DAI in your wallet, which is, which is secured by US dollar and tagged to that, uh, is a VPN. And now all of a sudden you don't have to, if you're, let's say Argentina, there was a big thing about how everyone was talking about Bitcoin's value going down from the all-time high to, to the dip. And, but if you held at that same amount of time Argentinian money, your money is devalued more than the Bitcoin from all-time high to, mm-hmm. the, to the dip. So, so if you think about it that way, if you, would have had, if you would have sold your Bitcoin and instead of putting it in your Argentinian bank account just held Tether, you would be in a much better position than you are today. Now, if you don't trust fiat money and government money at all because of them printing all of this money and everything that they're doing, you're going to have, you have Bitcoin. And as Bitcoin gets more stable, that's going to be more interesting. Or maybe a group like uh, PiDAO, who does BTC++ or these kind of things, will create a basket of international global currencies or something and do the tether, the, uh, uh, a basket where you're actually diversifying across 10 governments so that you can kind of get get the 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 best of the worst right <laughs> whatever you want to call it but but no matter what um you you can you can actually choose now and this choice is going to force the traditional markets the more it becomes mainstream the more wells fargo is going to have to be forced to play ball or go out of business and that's i think the the greatest excitement here because in the short time term wells fargo is not going anywhere jp morgan is still not going to go anywhere but every step toward every time they have to compete more and more to the DeFi space, they're going to get closer to it, more transparent and hopefully more fair for everyone. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The only thing I would say that in China, it's a little bit more complicated because I have a lot of friends there as well. And the, the also, uh, you see, it's easy to say that it's not like not hardly you can bypass it with VPN, but now they try to control also all the bank accounts. So when you're going from fiat to crypto, there's still limitation. There's red flags because you're still using like either it's yuan or whatever you can like yeah. use dollars, but it, they're like very much of control. So that's why they're doing one of the projects of digital yuan. Like 
I, I think most of the governments, their enemy is not digital currency, by the way. They're, they're, they love it, the concept. Yeah. The, the enemy is the cash, right? And like, that's how in India, like, you know, they, when they denominated, you know, uh, you know, one of the biggest bills, like, because there is 90% of the, of, the, uh, of the money we're in, like, in cash. Like, it's really hard. How do you, can you count it, right? So there's a lot of corruption. So there is different consequences. So right now, I think that's... Uh, so when all of a sudden those... Sovereign ideas, like you know, they they were like just uh, uh, I would say a precursor to the to helping governments to control people. Governments say, oh, wait a minute, but it's even better. Like you know, like you can programmatically control like the entire flow. So now they're developing a lot of actually national currency projects to completely combat the cash per se. So there is like two sides of this coin. So like you know, we we. I, I, I seem to think that on one hand, it will help the governments to do those things. The more for the same reason that banks will have to compete with the DeFi products, the governments are going to have to compete with the non-government money. And they're going to they're have a double-edged sword. On one hand, they're going to be more controlling. So if they decide they're not going to take Bitcoin for taxes and let people transact with Bitcoin because they want the control, then they're going to create their own digital dollars. And if those digital dollars are too aggressive in the way they work and too overstepping in privacy and whatever things they, they, uh, they create or, or um, program into those, those, uh, those, that digital money, what will happen is they're going to educate people on digital money and then people are going to choose the one that's better. Um, they're going to make dollars less sticky, basically. And, uh, and that will be the interesting. I think that'll be really, really interesting. Um, I, I could be totally wrong, but I, I'm all for more competition between them. Uh, I just don't, I just, you know, I think that it backfires every time they try to overregulate it. Because even with your China example, you're absolutely right. But the more digital money that flows globally, the less people will actually be transferring their own government money from their bank to, to digitize it. Why not just get a job at a DAO that's going to pay you in a token? And now it never went into your bank account. And if you can start transacting with, with anything, then there's liquidity layers like total. And you could be like, oh, I got paid in, uh, in the governance token for Balancer. And I'm just going to swap it for um, the Australian tether because the Australian dollar tether is what I need to pay for my flight to Australia. Um, you know, or, or whatever. And all of a sudden, uh, I think it'll go the opposite direction. People will be getting paid in crypto and then going, how, what small percentage of this do I need to send to my, uh, to my fiat money bank account to pay my taxes and do the things that they won't take in digital money yet? Um, it, it, it already worked, by the way, successful in Mexico. Like, and we had, uh, uh, you know, in previous series, we discussed like some of the examples. And uh, but I think, like, yeah, there will be in every country, like mentioning like uh, Argentinian peso, like you know, or any uh, like you can imagine like Venezuela or any other countries where there is a hyperinflation or like you know there is a like instability, which is nowadays there's a lot of the countries with this particular state. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can go to this topics like, you know, like in an infinite manner, but I want to come back to positivity. I want to come back to positivity. We started from positivity and we have to end with it. So I, tell think, me, I think this is all positive. I think this is... Oh, for positive. sure. No, I want to do hyper positive. Like, you know, there's hyperinflation. Let's do hyper positive. All right, let's do it. So tell me, I'm sure, listen, you talk to a lot of people, like you've met in the conferences, a lot of people, like, you know, have like sit downs, like funny stories, like evenings, cocktail parties. Tell me the funniest, like, again, with censorship, right? <laughs> the funniest story you can publicly tell what happened to you in the industry. Okay, so, so the funniest story, um, uh, funniest story. This is tough. I should have prepared. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I like the, uh, trying to think, you know, there's, there's so many like weird things that, that happened that have happened in the years, um, because of, of the craziness of crypto. Um, uh, it's, it's really hard to, to, to pick one, one thought, you know, I kind of like to, I, this is fresh in my mind because I give these presentations sometimes to these big groups and sometimes there's like very crypto groups and sometimes not very crypto groups. So like, you know, 
um, uh, I, I, I went and basically told the executive team at NBC Universal like three years ago, I taught them about Bitcoin. And there was one dude in the audience who everyone in the room, I found out kind of later, already hated this guy. But he was sort of this older guy and that was just like, I don't get it. Gold has value because it's gold. And like, how could a piece of technology have value? And everyone in the room was like, what do you mean? Like, and he, he basically like set it up himself because we're like, I was like, is Amazon that special? I mean, all they are is a website and they sell stuff on it. And, you know, I'd point out the technology and that, that was one thing that, that I had fresh in my mind. But this guy like literally was like trying to explain that, that technology doesn't have value. And, and he ended up kind of uh, digging his own hole. And I've got like a million stories like that. But one of the things that I like to kind of to, to talk about is the sort of the trajectory of, of the crypto space, because it really does end on a very positive note, because you, you've been there and you were there at the time when people went from like, hey, crypto is this interesting, cool thing to like, oh, my God, Bitcoin's price is going crazy. And just people came from all over the world. It's kind of like the same people who went from like, for me, it was like, oh, we're in crowdfunding because that's the easiest way to, to get money from people who don't know what they're doing. And then it's like, now we're in Bitcoin. And then the next day after Bitcoin crashes, they're all starting cannabis startups. And it was like, it's, 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 it's so like, hey, we're just going to follow the trend. But like we had a conference and our conference consistently, you know, grew. It was like, you know, started with like 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's like one conference. It's like, five or 6,000 people. And then the next conference is down to like 3,000. So it feels empty, but it's still a huge conference, right? And, uh, and I remember like some people like being just so negative about it all, like, freaking out and whatever, because they had just showed up. They showed up when Bitcoin was at 20,000 and now they're crying, right? Um, but, but what came of it is we're all left in a room now with all of the diehards. And you know that like, we, you know, we get to come into this room and got to meet some of the smartest people in the world. Like, you know, some of those crypto diehards that are like the Vitalik's of the world and people like that who are just like so smart on another level that every time you think you understand, you know, the space, there's some new layer that you have to peel back and peel back and peel back. And, and what happened with all of that craziness is that all of those looky-loos, all of the shady characters, all of the people who were a whole waste of time, the Lambos and the bullshit went away. Not that I'm against Lambos or anything, but, <laughs> but they, they all, all the goofballs left and the diehards who really wanted it, who really meant it, stuck around. And now there's a whole new, it's, it's growing and it's growing and it's growing and now it's steadily growing and we're at this whole new phase where it's feeling a bit like the ICO days in terms of certain things, but you look around and the percentage of bullshit to real stuff is, is, is completely different. Like most of the companies that we meet are incredible, right? Most of the people who are here that want to invest are super smart and are doing it for the right reasons. And there just isn't that, that crowd anymore that doesn't know what they're talking about. Even like the goofiest people that you see on Twitter and you're goofing around with them, you meet them in person, you have a phone call and you're like, oh my God, this person is impressive, right? And so I like to look at this chaos of this craziness and some of the media people like to go like, oh, Bitcoin, they still like to throw the negative stuff because that's their job, right? Like that's how they get eyeballs. But like there has, I've never been a part of something where I feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room by like a thousand times and everybody is doing such amazing things and like I, I this I think feel like that's where we're at right now in this space is that like so like we're it's it's exploding all over again and maybe I'm like I'm projecting a little bit because I'm so excited but really I feel like we're on the verge of something it's growing and growing and there isn't that fluff at, at least right now um, there's all this, like people are talking about this yield farming stuff can't go on. There's this and the DeFi and it's unsustainable and all this stuff. But like, just to understand it, you have to be next level kind of smart. Like, and so, and so it's like, it's, it's, you're meeting people and all these arguments are actually intelligent arguments. They're not that old guy in the corner going like gold is valuable. Why? You know, and he doesn't know because it's gold, but technology can't be. And you're like, what are you talking about? Pull out your phone. What is that? That's technology. Um, you know, it's like. Yes, I'm sure you have like a lot of those stories. And maybe one day we'll make like a separate like, you know, uh, show about like the, the, the fun stories. 
And yeah, last thing I will ask you, like there, uh, uh, maybe you can advise like a book, like or something that I like to read. Maybe like you know some exciting blog that you're following, like. I, you know, I like uh, lately. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible with books. So like, I've picked up. Uh, uh, I've read in different ways. Like Rodney Sampson, our venture partner, wrote a book called Kingonomics, which I read through one time completely, but I've picked up over the years like five different times and picked out certain sections and reread. And I love that book because it applies Dr. Martin Luther King's sort of uh, 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 teachings to economics. And it's really, really smart and great book. Um, and I picked it up the other day. That's why it's fresh on my mind. Um, um, but I'm, I'm terrible with books. I'm one of those people who picks up a book. I'll read like the first two chapters and be like, all right, I got the gist of it. But I do love a lot of these long form medium articles. And, uh, and, and it's partly like, you know, my ADD that gets in the way of me sitting and, and reading something all the way through nowadays. Um, so I'll say, you know, lately I've been, there's DeFi dad on Twitter. He does tutorials in the DeFi space. If you want to learn that space, he's great. Like he's, it's, he's, he's awesome. So I love that. Um, I will say that um, uh, I just, just, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll, I share lots of things like that. But if I'm just going completely like being honest, the thing I've read the most that wasn't t connected to the internet has actually been uh, Isaac Asimov short stories. I'm still a nerd for all of those books. They're my favorite things and they keep my attention long enough uh, because, you know, I can only read for 20 minutes at a time. I've been reading them to my kids. It's mostly goes over their head, but I'm like a nerd for it. So like the, uh, my favorite thing to tell people to read, if you haven't read any of those is uh, there's two stories. There's one called, uh, called the last question, which is probably his most famous story ever other than iRobot. Um, and there's one called the fun they had. And both of them are really, really good. One of them is about sort of education and how school is. And one of them is just a, a silly story uh, that you have to read because it's very profound in some ways, but it's also like mind blowing that this stuff was written like 70 years ago. Um, so uh, check those out. Uh, I won't go into the direct crypto stuff because I feel oh. like it changes every day. It's amazing. Look there, I, I, I love Azimov, like, and I think like a lot of his books are prophetic and uh, like, uh, like Orwell, Orwell's uh, jobs. And uh, uh, I, th I, th I think a lot of folks who worked in this realm of anti utopia and the, like we're, we're seeing it now. This is like, this is not a joke. This is like happening right now. Like, I don't know how they predicted to which universal like source they connected, but they somehow have seen certain patterns certain paradigm shifts that like many years ago, like, and it's definitely incredible. So I appreciate that. Uh, Lon, I really enjoyed our conversation. I think I, I'm sure that like, once we get to the level of Joe Rogan experience, we can like, you know, probably speak a three hour level. Like I, I, I'm sure we have a lot of topics, right? Ella? <laughs> you can do a round two, like live to Twitter one day. I'll, I'll connect with yeah. you live LinkedIn live or something like that. We'll do a round two. We'll tell everyone, the prerequisite is to listen to this and we'll keep it going. I would love that. And I appreciate your time. I wish you great success uh, with your adventure uh, fun. And I, uh, and generally in every, you know, uh, in every niche in every like, you know, project you're going in, I'm sure it's going to be successful because of your positivity. So thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you for having me and you too.